0: Hey, everybody, welcome to another episode of Rich State of Mind, where I'm talking to Tiffany Lindley. Tiffany is a cognitive therapist based out of Dallas, Texas, that specializes in moving high-achieving and empathic people from panic to purpose. Tiffany is a former nonprofit leader and mental health advocate that believes therapy is for everyone, and living life in your lane starts with taking the first step towards your truth. In this episode, we talk about anxiety and overachievers, anxiety and empaths, empathic ability. Racial empathy, relationships, interracial relationships, high achievers in relationships, domestic and dating violence, depression, high achievers, anxiety, trauma, teen mental health, childhood trauma, blended families. Pretty much everything, every aspect that would cover uh, pretty much any type of subconscious mindset that you may have or any problems that you uh, have now as an adult. That need to be fixed or in your relationship And I think this is all inclusive With having the right mindset Having that right rich state of mind In order for you to be the best version of yourself Thank you for listening Please enjoy Please visit our site at www.richstateofmind.com Where we provide content on real estate Personal finances And self-development Share your story and information while posting a blog on our site so that the Rich State of Mind community continues to grow in knowledge. You can also follow our Instagram page at rich underscore state brand to find out about exclusive offers and discount promotions for our apparel. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast because it's free. good evening tiffany thank you for taking the time this evening on this episode uh this is going to be a, a slightly different than what we usually talk about but it's definitely needed to be discussed uh so if you could please tell us a little bit about yourself
1: all right well my name is tiffany lindley i'm an lpcs which basically means licensed professional counselor supervisor and i'm a nationally certified counselor from dallas texas i own on epiphany lane llc A epiphany lane counseling which are a consulting and a counseling practice in Dallas that serves individuals that are high achieving and may struggle with anxiety and depression. So you can have success and still struggle with mental health and I kind of help those people kind of at that intersection. Um, I also train counselors in the state of Texas. And so that's about a two year process, which I really enjoy. Um, And then I do consulting with small businesses and corporations to incorporate mental health practices into their businesses. And also uh, provide you know a voice when they're having events in the future because you know we're just getting out of covid um, and i also own a boutique called shop on epiphany lane which encourages self-care and encourages people to really try something new when they are trying to improve themselves
0: awesome and so what got you into being a cognitive therapist
1: well i have known that i wanted to be in psychology since about high school there's a high school here in dallas texas called Skyline. It's one of the first career development magnet type high schools in the country, and we had a program uh, that was all about social science. And I was kind of debating between you know being a lawyer, being a psychologist, an anthropologist. Like I, I wasn't quite sure, but after really engaging with this that young, I knew like okay, I love talking to people. I love helping people. I'm not the best liar. <laughs> I really don't can't really have my face very well, um, and so I just I just stayed on the path. It really it's really that simple for me. I went to university at uh, University of Houston and did a psychology and com- communications because I loved media. I loved, you know, communicating with people, whether it's in person, even, you know, working in video and things like that. I was a videographer for like our basketball team. So just trying to blend all of my interests. And once I got to graduate school, um, you know, they teach us all the theories and, you know, cognitive just made sense to me. It's like, Thinking is one of the things that I do a lot, and it's one of the things that really does change how I feel. And the theory basically says your thoughts, you know, influence your emotions, your emotions influence your behavior. And so having awareness of your thoughts is the key to changing how you feel about situations and things, and then can change the behavior that comes from that. Um, and so I started my actual therapy career outside of training and Getting my license that took about four years, and I started working in nonprofits. And everywhere I went, you know, that's the evidence-based practice. So I was kind of set up to succeed, in that this theory that everybody endorses kind of works just for my personal, um, personal philosophy. So it's really it's the standard education that every therapist gets, but just some people don't connect to it. However, I do, and it it has helped a lot of people. I've, I've worked with kids as young as three. Not necessarily doing traditional talk therapy, but playing yes. <laughs> all the way up to adults and families. And there's a cognitive component to all types of therapy. You know, you're thinking the things you tell yourself are like the one thing that happens across whatever you're going through, whether it's with your relationship, whether it's with your family or individual. So yeah, it just it was just a part of the past that really stuck to me.
0: Uh, do you can when it comes to uh, your uh, clients. And you're trying to address their uh, anxiety or let's just say, let's go back with thoughts They're controlling their thoughts and emotions. Uh, Do you find yourself having to have them address their their younger years, their childhood? Yes,
1: Yes, that stereotype is true that your therapist, at least your cognitive therapist, is going to look at your childhood because our belief systems is another component of cognitive therapy because it's thoughts are more. Kind of on the surface but then beliefs are a little bit deeper it's, it's really hard to explain like scientifically but you know it's that background type of you know i'm i'm not good enough or you know i can't do anything and then so if you're not aware of that it's hard to really change any of it so yeah you know people have to look at where they learned that from because think about it a child is a blank slate well, a lot of the time you know they just need to get their needs met so the motivation is i need to live i'm going to cry i need a bottle But then when you're eight years old and you're trying your hardest and your mom says, that's the best you can do. How's that gonna make you feel? That's not, you know, this was my best and my mom doesn't think it's my best. I must not be good enough. You know, (laughs) it's like a, we call those like hallmark moments in your childhood that can create kind of a pattern of thinking negatively about yourself. And so, yeah, you gotta go back to childhood. I don't spend too much time there though which is kind of the advantage of cognitive therapy because we're just looking for evidence a lot of the time. I just need one example and that one example is enough to disprove a lot of the negativity and also prove something positive. So same example, you do your hardest as an eight-year-old, your parents are like excited and so it's easier for you to try new things because you know you're going to have that support because you had that one experience and you just keep fighting to get that one experience. So you can get that overachiever person from a positive experience too because they're trying to get that Positive feedback. So yeah, travel is very important, but it's not something that I personally spend too much time on, uh, so that people don't feel like we're trying to find some kind of problem with their family.
0: So when you when you talk about overachievers and high achievers, you make me think about the show Billions. Mm -hmm. You ever hear that show before?
1: I have. I haven't watched it though.
0: So in the show Billions, uh, there's one of the billionaires. He owns in his company. He has a therapist there, and (laughs) she. Uh, coaches these high-performing individuals throughout their day. And it it kind of opened up something because you think that those people's lives are perfect in, in a sense, right? Like mm-hmm. psychologically that they're they're fine. Every, obviously everybody's lives are not perfect, but psychologically they're fine because they're the successful. Their basic needs
1: are met because they have yeah, money, right?
0: Exactly. But you don't think that they have their many breakdowns or they need that little bump uh, to get them throughout the day. Uh, and so that's what you remind me of when you uh, talk about that because they, even people that are high-performing need that type (laughs) of uh, uh, therapy. And so can you walk me through, how do you coach somebody through uh, an overachiever, how you coach them through anxiety? Uh, Because is the anxiety because they already accomplished certain things and then now they they have a habit of always raising the bar on themselves all the time?
1: Well, yes and no. Um, For people that have achieved things, and I, what I often see is that they either can't enjoy them, so they can't really find the joy in their accomplishment. It's kind of like, okay, fine, that was good enough, and I do the next thing. Again, anxiety is a great emotion. Like you can't be an overachiever without it, because it is the emotion that is a strat- is creates strategy. Because you know you've heard a fight or flight response, right? Yes. Fight, flight, freeze. Without anxiety, that doesn't work. That there's no responding. There's no, you know, aggression. You're just kind of stuck and so them being able to harness that emotion to get things done, to power through things, to think of solutions and creativity is so important. But what happens is it's the only emotion that they're using to get things done. When in reality, you want anxiety to be the kind of catalyst to get you started. And then, you know, the self, self-esteem, self the confidence, like I know I can do this, i practice this, um, you know, I'm really good at this and being able to like motivate yourself positively is kind of like the wind in your sails mm-hmm. so you so they need it and so that's what makes it complicated because yeah it's gotten you this far you're you've gotten two promotions in three years you've you know achieved these degrees or or you know you're a doctor or a lawyer but how do you maintain that and that's the thing with anxiety at high achievers too is that if you're focused on the achievement you're not focused on kind of the role, of kind of being in that space and finding like a piece about where you are. It, you know, it's that balance between contentment and encouragement. Like you want to be good where you are, but then you also want to have the motivation to do more, to do what's scary and what's never been done before. So, so yeah, it can be a good thing. But I think a lot of times what happens is that we're not taught to just enjoy it or celebrate it it's celebrated for a short amount of time. And it's not enough to really be the motivator itself. It's more of like, okay, I get it just a little bit. It's like a little hit, so let me do more so I can get more hits versus anytime I achieve, I really sit and enjoy it and then move to the next thing. It's it's like this pressure, like time's running out. I got to get it all done now. And so that's another part of it is is with fight or flight. the, The assumption is I'm in a crisis. This is life or death. Our brains can't tell the difference between life or death you know, once that's activated (laughs) you go into hyperactive mode. And so it's really being able to train your brains like, Hey, this is something important, but this is not going to kill me. You know, yeah, I got to do this report and it's going to take me eight hours. However, I'm going to be fine. But then you have those other people that, you know, they're on a 10 the whole time and having panic attacks and completely stressed out when it's something that they do all the time. And so it's really training their brains to know the difference between, you know, this is the end, and this is the next thing in my journey.
0: You remind me of a conversation I had with my father a few years ago uh, when I was talking about getting my bachelor's degree, mm-hmm. and he was like, uh, "It." I was taking classes online, so the the, the university is actually in Phoenix, Arizona, and you know he was like, "Hey, you should fly out there when you walk across the stage." Uh, I was like, well, "You know why? Uh, you know because in the military, you know we're kind of milestone." you know grown so it's milestone all right on to the next thing milestone on to the next thing never really get a chance to really enjoy too many of our accomplishments because it's it's always the mission Uh, so i was just like you know hey dad it's just another accomplishment and uh i gotta move on to the next thing you know Mm -hmm. and he says no you're like no you need to fly out there and you need to walk across stage and really enjoy that moment and i was like you know what you're right i should Uh, I kind of have robbed myself out of the enjoyment of certain accomplishments uh, because, yeah, I may be doing better than what my family may have done or other people in my circle, but I'm like, I could do more. There's more I can do. Uh, And so you kind of remind me of that conversation. That's Uh, a great
1: example. That's a great example.
0: I I like that. Um, take, Take a moment and enjoy the accomplishment.
1: Yeah. Just really feeling the joy and having a sense of peace of like, and peace and pride of what you actually did so that you can remember that. Like you need those memories to, to keep doing the next thing and not have to do it with so much urgency. So now that's a great example. Yeah. I I actually see that a lot. I work with a lot of graduate students. And so, you know, at least once around this time of year, you know, April, May, I'm trying to talk to someone about, hey, so are you gonna go to graduate? situation and you know what 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 are the feelings around them a lot of times you know they have to convince themselves to go for the same reason it's like oh nobody's gonna care or you know I gotta start my job next week so (laughs) (laughs) all those kind of things but yeah yeah enjoying the moment is is really important uh
0: something else I wanted to talk about still staying on the anxiety portion is anxiety and impasse so explain to me what is that
1: so yeah so the other I guess a uh, specialty I, I work with is an empathic person. So an empath is someone who easily feels other people's emotional energy. <clears throat> Excuse me. That's not the easiest way for me to say it. It's, it's got some scientific basis. You know, uh, our neurons mirror each other. So you think about like a little baby copying your face. Like our brains kind of automatically copy each other. But an empath is someone that can literally maybe walk in a room and kind of feel like oh, something's off here. Um, Even meeting certain people, it's just a sensitivity. It's not in a lot of people, I'd say maybe less than 20% of the population, and it's at different intensities. Some people are a little bit like, you're just good at reading people, you got some a little bit of empathic. Then you have kind of the woo-woo people we think of when we think of something like that, (laughs) you know, uh, clairvoyant people, those that read tarot cards, or, you know, even people in, in traditional spiritual practices them being able to kind of read people's energy. And so yes. what I have found, you know, the impact thing found me after I started private practice work. I've always talked about it with like my youth, um, just basically sensitivity. I worked with a lot of kids with on the autism spectrum or with ADHD. And so those are called uh, neurodivergent people and I'm a person with ADHD too. So our brains just work a little differently than the typical brain. Um, it's not that I can't focus, it's just I can't focus consistently. <laughs>
0: yes.
1: Like, okay, if it's something that I'm passionate about, hyper-focus, you're gonna get the best work you can get out of me. But if it's something that I don't wanna do, I'm totally disconnected, I'm finding something else to stimulate me. But how that how that relates to being an empath is that those people tend to be overwhelmed easily because they're sensitive to what's happening in their environment. It can be sounds, it can be light, um, smells, and then you add on top of it somebody's kind of intensity of emotion because emotions, you know, they work in waves, mm-hmm. you, know, you know, just like brain waves, everything kind of moves in energy. And so those people tend to find uh, professions where they help people, where they have to connect to people. And that can be someone in sales. I've worked with empaths that are in accounting, I've worked with empaths that are, you know, teachers, of course, or lawyers. But the thing that I see that's common is that they often can't tell. When they're taking on other people's stress like my anxiety and your anxiety are separate however if i'm an empath and i'm not aware i'm absorbing your feeling of anxiety with mine because I, mean, I mean i might already be anxious but i found like once they have kind of learned that emotional boundary of like oh wait when i feel like this or when i when there's no thought that happened before i feel this way i probably probably not my feeling yeah. because people think you can't you can't control how you feel well, no you can't but you can't control how you think. And so the thing about thoughts is that they're automatic a lot of the time because this brain thing is is an amazing machine. But if you're you're aware of it, then it's a lot easier to at least, you know, even if the bad thought comes through, you can kind of check it before the emotion hits and change it. But for empaths, they have to feel the feeling first and then do the thinking piece and then feel it again. And so it's a little bit more of a Complicated process, and with them, a lot of times I work on behavior first because it can go thoughts, feelings, behaviors, but then it can go behaviors, thoughts, feelings, or behaviors, feelings, thoughts. It's just you can't start with emotion. You just emotion doesn't come out of nowhere. It's a reaction. It's energy and so motion. Yeah, so that's what I always tell clients: think about emotions as energy and motion. Something needs to move within you or without you in order for this emotion to do its job because emotions have a job to be sad the whole point of that is to you know acknowledge the value of something and the loss of something and to acknowledge your sense of power over it but then the opposite of that would be joy but the value part's the same <laughs> you know it's gratitude versus loss right i'm grateful that this is in my life and that i have some kind of control or some type of experience with this thing it's not that it's gone it's that it's here and i can enjoy it and i'm joyful and so Looking at emotions as tasks that need to be accomplished helps a lot with people that are that are empathic but also high achievers because it's got to make sense, right? It's like, what are you talking about? I just feel stuff, but then I ask them a bunch of questions and I'm like, well, you seem like one because I'm one, and you know, it helps me in my job, so I have no doubt that it helps you in yours. So once they kind of you know work through that as an identity, I, I, I often see them you know, empower themselves so much more because now this thing is seen as a strength versus some kind of liability. Like, okay, I can't be in big groups because people are going to overwhelm me. It's more of like, okay, I'm going to a crowd and kind of work the room and I know how to like get away, give me a moment, you know, I always know where the bathroom is. That's what I tell all impasse and the exits. Sometimes you need fresh air. Sometimes you need to, you know, get in that stall and kind of breathe your way through just because people can be a lot. But, uh, but yeah, the empath, their process is like, I feel something, I got to think about it, and then I got to feel it again to make sure it's my feeling, if that makes sense.
0: And so I like the fact that you talked about using, don't use it as a crutch, using it as a strength okay. when you go into a, a room or some type of setting, a meeting.
1: Mm-hmm. Right. You can, you can kind of like feel who's open to you, feel who's, you know, who may need to be open. Because sometimes it's like in certain types of impacts attract other people too. So if you're more of that true introvert, it's like, cool, I can just kind of stand with confidence and certain people will be attracted to me. And then you yeah, know, kind of some law of attraction type things, you know, you're manifesting positivity like, okay, well, whoever come up, comes up to me, I'll, I'll know what to say. Like you, you affirm yourself in the moment. And so if you feel like going up to people takes too much energy, let me, re- let me retain my own energy Allow them to bring their energy to me and then I can work with that. That makes sense. So you can actually okay. gain energy from other people. Um, yes. as a way to kind of balance out the intensity it can be sometimes with being an empath. Sorry.
0: And so w- speaking of empaths, I want to also talk about you used to talk about racial empathy. That was one of your, also one of your topics. Yes. Explain that to me. I'm very curious on what you mean by that.
1: Oh, so, racial empathy is not quite the same. But for empaths, it's a lot easier, i found. Like when I, when I meet or work with empaths that are not from a, a disadvantaged or marginalized group, you know, they get it. But racial empathy as a concept is more about teaching the emotion of empathy. It's one of the most complex emotions we have because it requires a cognitive component. You can't just feel empathic. That's sympathy. Like I can see what you're seeing, but I, you know I don't understand it and I can't reflect it to you. And so with racial empathy therapy, which is basically what I do, and of course that can be converted into like a presentation or something to teach to a group, but I've done it as a a way for families to reconcile because there's, you know, interracial relationship or um, yeah, usually, or an interracial, you know, child or the grandparent situation where it's generational. And for some reason, there's a disconnect between this family that has a child or child dating someone of another race but then they have these views that don't really line up. So yeah, racial empathy, you're basically teaching people what empathy is in general, because most people assume they are empathic or can show empathy when they're really not doing it. You're showing sympathy typically. Like, okay, I can understand what you're saying, or I can feel what you're saying, but I don't have a deep understanding and I really couldn't couldn't explain it back to you. Versus someone that's showing empathy, it's like, I know why you're hurting, I see the reasons why you're hurting, and here's what it is. So it's a, it's a communicative emotion. You can't just feel empathy inside yourself. You have to share it for it to be valid. I mean, all feelings are valid, but for it to be truly <laughs> yeah. moving through like it's supposed to, it's going to stay stuck in you. And then you, then eventually it's going to turn to sympathy because you're not communicating anything, right? It's like, oh, I feel so bad for them. Oh, you know, that's so the poor people. It's like, it stops becoming about a relationship. And it's more about feeling bad for somebody, but not taking action. Because empathy is also supposed to be a motivating emotion. If I feel what you're feeling and I see your pain or see your joy, I wanna be involved in that because I care about you as a human being. And so with racial empathy, what we're at, basically asking clients to do is understand how to be empathic for people of different races, different cultural backgrounds uh, or whatever, and understanding your barriers to doing that. And a lot of times it's just a lack of knowledge. It's like, you just don't know. And, but if you allow this emotional block, or allow some belief system about certain types of people, i.e., stereotypes, to maintain, eventually you'll learn enough evidence that you can't, you can't believe that anymore. Eventually you're gonna have to change your beliefs and see people in a more holistic and complex way. You cannot simplify a person to they're all this, they're all that. And so, so yeah, it's it's the process of understanding empathy as a emotional concept, but also bringing in the aspect of race, especially in America, and using it as a, as a space to reconcile relationships. Because at the end of the day, you know, if you treat strangers a certain way, your family is going to have a hard time trusting you how you treat them. And that, that's really been what I've seen in the families I've worked with. It's like, yeah, you say you do all these things, you donate, and you do the things, but then I see how you talk about these people, or talk about the news, or you know, it was his fault and how can I trust I'm going to be safe in this family if this is what you believe, even though your actions may show something different. So kind of so getting you, that alignment.
0: And so you, you find people, they, uh, they either deal in absolute or still keep their same uh, misconceptions despite them maybe dating somebody of the opposite race or uh, opposite race, but a different race. Uh, but they'll say, well, you're different. You're not like the others.
1: Right. Or they'll use their fear or saying, you know, oh, I do have empathy for them because I was afraid when they said that. And the, and the partner's like, I wasn't afraid. I was angry. So like, even though you say you love me and you want to be a part of the solution, you're letting fear guide you. That's not the same emotion I'm feeling. Therefore, the empathy's not there. And even with like generational things, like a grandparent and a and a child, and it's like, yes, you, you look good on the outside, but there's dissonance. We call it cognitive dissonance when one idea and reality don't line up. Like, yeah, you, you look good on paper, you, you know, they'll donate it to the, you know, the boys and girls club, but you would never let those children in your home.
0: <laughs> do you truly
1: understand their experience and do, do you not have stereotypes or assumptions about who they are without even having a real relationship? With
0: I, I completely understand where you're coming from with that. And uh, I guess you could say when uh, they say the proofs in the pudding uh, in <laughs> situations like that. Yeah. So so we're talking about relationships Uh, when it comes to high achievers, right? High achievers in relationships. How do you coach them through that?
1: Oh, I love working with high achievers in relationships because I'm a romantic at heart anyway, (laughs) but, and then being an empath, I kind of get a little hit off of their, you know, the love that's there, but a lot of times there is conflict. And what I see often is that people aren't communicating And it could be from just mental exhaustion. Um, For example, you have somebody that might be a little bit more of a introverted person, kind of they're in their head all day. They do more of like a technical job so they're not talking all day. And then they're with somebody Mm -hmm. who talks all day, loves to talk, not necessarily extroverted, but just very verbal. And so they come to the same home, nonverbal person is super quiet, verbal person is trying to read them, and it's like they won't talk to me and then it comes to me and they're like they won't talk to me and i'm asking them well i'm fine i don't feel anything i'm okay it's like are you sure like you're human even numbness is a feeling you you have to feel something to know that you're numb and so uh giving them kind of that encouragement and like getting them in the habit of communication so one of the activities all my clients all my couples do is having that check-in time every day where they you, you know highlights of the day low lights of the day you know, um, things you're looking forward to. It doesn't have to be a long conversation, but it just, you need to know certain things to feel secure in that connection and to kind of rebuild it over 24 hours that can be, be crazy day of your life. But if you don't tell anybody about it, you won't process it, it's gonna weigh on you. It's not gonna be something you just forget about. Um, I also use something called, I'm a scientist in my mind too. I, 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 I do believe in evidence-based things. And so I use this assessment called Prepare Enrich. And it's basically a bunch of questions. And once the couples fill out those questionnaires, I get the areas of strength and the areas of growth. So we don't say the weaknesses. We say the growth areas, right? And then we kind of get their couple types. So you got your like vitalized couples, people that are super motivated, which I tend to get a lot of vitalized couples, a lot of premarital, a lot of cohabitating early marriage, right. you know, first three, four years. And then you have those that are very conflictual and it, it could be like a value difference. That's another big thing. So them being aware of their values and kind of seeing how they align um, because with values, there's no bad values. Some people say, you know, they have, they have bad values. It's not a bad value. It's a bad representation of the value, right? Because money is a value, right? Money is something mm. people can value. You can value it as a philanthropist and, you know, or you can value it as a you know drug cartel person. <laughs> it's, okay. it's how they Okay, I,
0: I, I get what you're saying. I get what you're
1: saying. Um, I mean, now I guess if you value death, even even something like this, <laughs> mortician, or you can be an ex murderer. But <laughs> at the end of the day, okay. concept, the idea itself is technically neutral until we give it meaning. That's why we have emotions. We wouldn't have nothing would have meaning without feelings. We would just be robots doing and doing and thinking, doing and thinking. That's a computer. But feeling, that's what makes us. Whole humans. And so, in those relationships, it's really reminding them that, yeah, this is the person that you can be your whole self with based on your commitment to them. And so, knowing when to turn off your armor, because again, I work with a lot of couples, either interracial couples, you know, couples of color, and just people that have to turn it on when they go to work. And it's like, how do you learn how to turn that off? How do you learn how to calm yourself so you can be present with your partner and like, be human and be who they dated and be who they fell in love with and not this, I've got to take care of you. I've got to be a robot or I have to be perfect so that you don't leave me. You know, those kind of fears come up once you get into that commitment. So, so yeah, it's very interesting. It's it's complex work and I enjoy it a lot because uh, people are just so freaking interesting. So, so yeah. Do
0: you find high achievers in relationships try to outdo each other?
1: Sometimes, sometimes they can compete. (laughs) But um, what happens is You know, it's like, how can we put that competitiveness, because that's another value some people have, into a place where it's going to be a positive thing or something that connects you. Because yeah, we, you know, if one person values competitiveness and the other one does, does doesn't, you're not going to have fun at an arcade. Like they're going to try to beat you at everything and you're going to feel bad, the person that's not competitive. But if this person values like encouragement, then hey, I'll be your number one cheerleader, but you can't play me because you play too much. (laughs) You go too hard. And so just knowing when and where to compete versus like trying to one up each other because it's a partnership. Because, you know, we talk more about there's communication. Of course, finances is a big discussion we have because that's in that top five thing that thing that ends relationships is financial issues, Uh, family, of course, Um, family and culture, if children are involved, parenting. Because what's another big thing is like how people see themselves as parents is important. You think about it, you have all the success in your career and you, you manage teams and you're a manager or a director or something. And you come home and these little tiny people are like terrorizing your house. And so, again, application of skills that you already have on a strengths base as well. So like you can do this, you know, what's making it hard because they're tiny, like you don't have to beat them. Just, <laughs> you know, create a system in their life to where they can make the best choice more easily versus having these power struggles with little people. And so, so yeah, competitiveness happens. It's just applying it in a place where it's, it's gonna be, makes sense. And then also like power struggles happen in relationships. And, and once people realize it's about equality, like not that we're the same, but we both add value to this relationship, it, it gets a little easier and it, it stops being about a win-win, you know, win-lose situation it becomes more of a win-win I really don't like compromise, honestly. But I know it's a necessary that? evil. Well, because, again, I'm, I'm, I'm an optimistic, positive psychologist. I'm like, there's got to be a perfect solution. No, not perfect, but there's got to be a solution that both people get what they want in some aspect. Compromise okay. without having to give up anything that's like huge. Because compromise, it has that kind of connotation of like, I'm losing a lot. Not I'm losing a little bit.
0: <laughs> I always but, look at it as you're losing half. You're losing half. Glass half full. Why-
1: yeah, I'm like 75%. Like I want, I want at least a C if we're going to do some conflict resolution so that you can be motivated to stick to the plan too. Because like, yeah, if I had to compromise at one time, I don't want to keep doing that. That's not fun. So being creative with a the, with the conflict resolution too is a, is a big part of it.
0: I like that conflict resolution. So if there cannot be conflict re- resolution and then in a lot of situations where there cannot be conflict resolution, uh, what are your thoughts? on uh coaching through divorce, uh whether it's for the parents and then slash children.
1: Yeah, it does happen. You know, I've had couples that did not, you know, reconcile. And usually it's an emotional component. It's it's usually not based in factual things. And that's the thing about the assessment that I think The hardest thing to do for us as couples counselors is when someone splits out the door, and they're not the one coming to therapy to try to fix it. It's hard. I can't I can't grab them and pull them back. Like I'm I'm a, a neutral party, and the person that's brought them to therapy has been pulling for the longest. And so, I'm pulling that person, and they're pulling them, but they're they're already out the door. Um, so as far as like reconciling and having a amicable divorce, it is focusing on the facts. And okay, we have to be business like about this. And so then, okay, you got high achieving people divorcing right. Y'all know how to negotiate. You know how to strategize. Um, and so being consistent and, and, and being accountable, um, it's like, once you have the plan, how can we get emotion involved to motivate you to keep doing it? Cause everybody can say, Oh yeah, I'll do that. I'll, you know, go to court and tell the judge that, Oh yeah, I'll pick them up every weekend and mm-hmm. I'll do this and I'll do that. But what emotionally haven't you worked through to where, you can think something that'll stop you from getting your kids when you know that's what you want. And so when I'm doing se- counseling with them separately, those are the kind of things I have to ask them about. Like, this is the stuff you don't want to think about. Because um, again, it sounds good on paper, but then when you get in reality, your emotions are going to be there to help you make the decisions. And you've got to have the right mindset to be able to be present and still be you know, a parent um, to the person that, and be a co-parent with the person that you, you've uh, ended a relationship with. Um, and I find that's probably the hardest thing is that, okay, I said I was going to do this and I have no motivation to do it now that it's over.
0: Uh, how do you try to um, help the parents try to come to an uh, a excellent or perfect solution that can work out for both individuals? Because I know this is a joke I've been making because uh, I'm, 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 I'm divorced. And so uh, they always talk about when it comes to divorce, it's you're not nobody's ever asking for half their love back they're asking for uh you know assets money obviously the children yeah and so uh how are you able to coach them through that they're like hey let's let's put our emotion and that's hard to say right let's put our emotions right aside there's a time these for these them
1: decisions. to be present yeah it's like well, there's a time where i need you to have some kind of feeling because if you're suppressing your feelings it's going to make them stronger if that makes sense i call emotions like house guests that don't know when to leave if you don't let them out. If you don't tell okay. them to leave, they won't leave. I like that analogy. And so, yeah, and so like if you have resentment and you're bitter, bitter, bitter beer face about what happened and you haven't told anybody in entirety about what happened, even if it's like your best friend, your mom, because they're going to be on your side, right? Oh well, yeah, they don't, they don't deserve you. Da, da, da. Like, okay, yeah, you're boosting me up, but I'm not processing the painful part. You're trying to get me past the pain and just be this tough, strong person and get over this, you know, grief because divorce is a loss. It's like a death. Um, and so to get to that good solution, I, I, I strongly encourage people to have their own therapy. It doesn't have to be forever, you know, anywhere from six weeks to, you know, several months to, to, to a year or so. Even if you are dating again, it's like having someone that's neutral, that's going to be honest with you, but also encourage you Uh, it's going to help you kind of keep your mind clear of all of the influences on the outside that may be wanting you to like get over it or demonize the other person because you still have to have love for your child's parent it doesn't have to be romantic love it's more of a commitment type of love if you're lucky a friendship too (laughs) but if nothing else commitment needs to still be in that relationship because you're committed to developing these young people into functioning adults um, and so, I guess to get to that solution is having people come with that open mind of, I can actually come up with a solution. Because if you think this ain't gonna work, I don't know what she's talking about. She don't know what I'm talking about. She's never been divorced and it's like, what does I have to do anything? Like, you've never been to space, but I bet you can figure out how to get inside of a spaceship. Doesn't mean you're going anywhere. So, I'm not. I'm not in the marriage, so I don't have to know the intimate details. All I need to know is What's the plan? What's, what are the obstacles? How can we work through those things so that we can get you to your destination? Because I'm not going there with really. you. And I think that's been an analogy that's, you know, the, the, the counselor being on the path, like that's just been so deep inside of me. That's why it's like the name of my business. I remember my first professor counseling 101. <laughs> like, he was like, yeah, like we're not experts in, in these, this specific person. We're expert in how people work in general. And even in specifics and you know, your job is not to fix anybody. It's just to walk along the path as long as they let you. And it's an honor to be able to do that. And so I take that into account too. It's like, it it makes it easier to grieve when clients leave because it's like, well, that's all they can take of me. That's okay, I'm (laughs) alive. Or they've gotten what they needed and okay, I, I can be proud that, you know what, they got something from this time, whether it's, I don't need this or wow, I got all these tools in like four sessions and I feel like a ton better and I can kind of get through these these next few months because, you know, eventually they they come back sometimes or if they not if they don't, they give me updates and it's like, cool. Um, I'm not the therapist that wants you to sleep on their couch for the rest of your life. Like I want you to go live. And so, so yeah, it's really having the right mindset of this can work. Because if you don't have that, you're starting way behind the, the starting line, right?
0: And so what do you, what do you can, uh, how do you coach the children through this process? Because uh, one thing that I've noticed, <clears throat> I- I've noticed if you got two parents on the same page, you can, the two parents can coach that child through the divorce, right?
1: Yeah,
0: yeah. You know, depending on the age, how uh, in-depth you want to go with what, you know, what's going on. Mommy and daddy just don't like each other anymore. Or mommy <laughs> and daddy, uh, we have our differences. We're living in different mm-hmm. houses right now but we love you, right? Uh, mm-hmm. And we will make sure that that never changes. Uh, but I have also seen it when it does not go right and neither parent are on the same page. Uh, where do you come in to help facilitate that process for the child?
1: It, it is a complicated process. Um, I started my career in domestic violence. Uh, so I was a counselor for survivors, I'm trying not to say victims, survivors because they're yes, here yes people that d- didn't survive and then i uh, worked with kids i did play therapy and then i also worked with the, the perpetrators so i've seen the extreme of like we don't get along and this is not a safe place the thing about kids is they just have to process the feelings because if they don't process them it's gonna the feelings become fixed somehow it's like okay yeah this is a bad. this is my fault that's usually the first thing kids think right they're egocentric that's just how their brains work (laughs) they think they control everything and they don't uh Uh and that's kind of you know that's what makes being a teenager so hard because you realize how much power you don't have and that's why they're so rebellious because they're trying to fight for like wait a minute I got everything I wanted when I was a kid even if you didn't it's like I had all this opportunity and and impossibility but working with kids that have uh survived divorce it's really all about them understanding what's happening to them emotionally and then also seeing their, their parents as humans without taking away kind of their hero confidence. Like, what do you love about your mom? What do you love about your dad? You know, what do they do right? Versus focusing on what they do wrong. Cause they probably hear a lot of that negativity anyway from their parents. And just also them being able to learn how to feed themselves, give themselves self care because it's really a touch and go it just depends on the like specifics. But in general, it's them understanding their emotions, understanding how to feel safe emotionally, which is, you know, it's a trauma. It's, you know, divorce is, we call it an adverse childhood experience. And so they may get complexes of, you know, avoiding commitment and um, repeating the behaviors they might've seen in their parents or even just heard about Like maybe they were shielded from it, but then they hear something about it and it's like, oh, okay. Nobody like willfully chooses to do the bad behavior. That's the crazy part. It's like, I didn't choose to be a womanizer. I didn't choose to like, never be in a relationship. And somehow I'm doing it. And until you examine it, it's like, oh yeah, my parents had a divorce when I was two. Like, I don't know what commitment looks like. And you have to like, have that aha moment, that epiphany, <laughs> for lack of a better word, so that you can work with that. Okay. So what's true about that? What's not true about that? What do you really want? Um, and you can ask that to a teenager. You can ask that to a 10 year old. Uh, I've seen it so many times. I- I've seen kids have to adapt to step parents and like, Okay, <laughs> how can we get you to, you might have to be the bigger person. I've had to tell kids that like, hey, I can't work with your stepmom. I, I I, don't, he doesn't even come and drop you off. So I've never even talked to this person. But what can you do to manage yourself and feel safe in your body and safe in your mind to where if you have an idea of what the consequence is going to be, then you kind of have an idea of what you can do. Like, all right, if they're going to punish me either way, I'm not going to do the bad thing. I'm going to do the good thing so that I got the evidence over time of like, look, I'm doing what I'm supposed to do. And now I can go to my parent and say, hey, parent, I'm advocating for myself. Look, I know you love this person, however, here's the evidence, if that makes sense. So getting yeah. them to have that resilience to like, you're gonna endure some pain and we gotta figure out how you can take care of yourself, even though your parents' jobs are to take care of yourself, but it's also their job to teach you how to take care of yourself. So as a therapist, I'm just an extra hand in that process while these adults are dealing with very complex issues their daily lives and just trying to survive a lot of the time and i want that kid to have the tools to thrive so go beyond just getting through it but also coming out with more than they had when they started
0: you talked about uh, you know stepmother earlier and so i wanted to touch a little bit on blended families and how uh it's an adjustment process um personally i'm actually in a blended family myself uh and so i want to know uh what are your tips on uh, integrating each other, you know, into the, you know, the, into the business. Yeah, it's a family business.
1: <laughs> is, uh, I like that you said I'm going to use that when you <laughs> you finish your question. <laughs>
0: uh, well, I'll start with that. Yeah. You know, how do you, how do you coach uh, the family or the individuals uh, into integrating each other and adjusting to a blended family?
1: It, again, it sounds kind of dry, but a family meeting can change a lot because what a family meeting does especially if you have an adolescent or an older child it gives them kind of the realization of oh there's a time and a place for me to say what I need to say i don't have to like hold everything in and then over time as a unit you're teaching this person how to communicate in the most effective way so it's not that you're remo- you're communicating without emotion it's not that you can't get mad it's just like how do you get mad you don't flip the table over you just say what you have to say <laughs> and there's also gives them a chance to kind of have a say in what happens in the family and it also gives kind of a, a a place for people to celebrate. We were talking about that earlier, right? And so when you're creating a new family unit, you want you want to be able to express peace, power, and joy. Those are my three like goal emotions. And they're, they're more categories, but if you can feel peace, power, and joy in your week, in your day, you're doing pretty good and so peace that's the conflict resolution part right all right uh somebody didn't clean up the bathroom we already got the schedule i didn't see you check it off what are we going to do what else do you need to make sure you can get your tasks done so having a system of how the family operates versus okay you're the oldest you do everything like that's not fair how are they going to (laughs) learn advocate for themselves if there's not any fairness and of course they're going to complain anyway even if it is fair yeah but You have true evidence like, well, hmm, you feel like it's not fair. Good thing feelings aren't facts. What are are the facts? Well, I actually only clean the bathroom twice a week, and there's only one day that nobody cleans the bathroom, so I guess it's fair. Okay, they can verbalize that, though, in a family meeting versus when they're getting yelled at (laughs) because the bathroom's not cleaning with their day. Um, So that's the peace part is like, there's a space for conflict resolution. Uh, The power part is, again, that speaking up for yourself, hey, Uh, Was there something that was said or done this week that you, that's still kind of going in your mind and you want to get it out? It can be something about the family. It can be something at school. It can be something in the news. So it's like an open forum for the kids and the adults too to kind of share that because kids don't see adults talk about their feelings like that. Just, you know, opinion-wise or just how things have affected them. They overhear it, right? You can hear your mom and your dad on the phone like, man, that was messed up. But like to actually say it to your kid, that's powerful. Even as a step parent, like, oh wow, they're talking to me. Like they see me. I'm like a, like a person that's valuable to them because they want to have a conversation, um, versus talking at them or talking near them or talking around them. And then the joy part that, well, that's a celebration, right? All right, what are your wins this week? What can we celebrate? Uh, and if they're having a hard time, you helping them figure out how to celebrate even the smallest progress. Like you were saying, it's getting to that spot is gonna take little wins too. So whether it's I didn't fall off my bike this weekend. I've been skinning my knees for the last three months. Well, there you go, look at you, getting balanced. Or I got an A on my test, or I got selected for this special program. Or, you know, I cut up this picture. They're the little one, right? Whatever it is, being able to celebrate each other, because that's a part of what the family unit is about too. So it's a, it's a place to grow, it's a place to train, and also a place to celebrate and it's hard to get especially families of color to kind of buy into the family meeting concept a lot of times they do it and don't realize and i'm like you know sunday dinner that's what you've been doing all your life you know but being aware of it makes it more powerful and so with step families, i mean i wish it was something i had when i was growing up with my step family my, my stepmother and my dad is like we don't talk enough and i'm used to my mother she was a very Communicative parent like we would talk at dinner and she would ask me stuff and my sister who's a lot older you know we, we all my brother we all would talk and so no we didn't talk all the time because we were all empaths we were all in our rooms <laughs> shut in most of the week right but when it was time for us to be together we were present and so kind of making that the norm in your new family your blended family is is what I usually encourage in the families I've worked with I've seen some success again, usually the barrier is somebody's feelings because <laughs> they haven't forgiven someone or they're resentful or they have loyalty to their parent that's not in the home. And so getting them to work through that, like, well, I mean, they're not here. <laughs> like, you're not cheating on them. They're still your dad they're still your mom. Even though they're not here, it's okay for you to be joyful in the moment. You're not taking anything from that adult because you're enjoying being with this other adult that's taking in a role that they're not able to fulfill because they're not with your parent anymore. Yeah. Um, So just being like, honest with kids too. I I guess that's what I really enjoyed. I didn't have to be, you know, of course I'm professional, but I guess you know what I'm saying. Like I can, I didn't have to code switch. (laughs) I didn't have to, you know, and this and this, but I could still explain very complex things to them in a simple way and they would get it. And they're like, oh, okay, that makes sense. This is not that big of a deal. I don't know why I'm tripping. And then I just translate that to adults and it makes the work go faster, I think, is that if I'm being authentic, then they don't have to be the perfect client and then they can just take in the information.
0: Uh, one thing that we do when we have our family meetings is that we uh, we use that opportunity to also set expectations.
1: Awesome. that's great. And
0: so, yeah. yeah so we, in those expectations, we say, hey, moving forward, you know, you need to do X, Y and Z from now on. And so I'm big on setting a standard. So. Sometimes we'll say, parents, we're, we're, we're really good for saying, hey, we would like you to do X, Y, and Z uh, and take this into consideration. I don't expect the teenager or my eight-year-old to take certain things into consideration at my adult <laughs> level, right? I agree. Um, and so I'm really big on, hey, this is what you'll do every day so that when you, or let's just say Monday, Wednesday, Friday. So there's no confusion that that is your responsibility uh, moving forward, and so, um, you know, with us having a, a blended family, uh, one thing is meeting of the minds of what everybody's thought process is, because, uh, like you said, maybe parent uh, kids may have loyalties to other parents, right, so hey, tell us, how did you feel when I said X, Y, and Z, right, did you feel some type of way when I was stern, or did you feel some type of way when um, I took, you know, junior to uh, this this event and not you, uh so just yeah. stuff like that it, you're right it gives it does give your child a voice obviously respectfully in order for them to facilitate their emotions and yeah. it allows i your... like that
1: those firm boundaries are so important like and that's another thing i'm like empowering parents like you know you still run them it's they're your responsibility you can say no like and even just knowing the categories of like negotiation because it changes the age right like you don't negotiate with a child you're getting this or that <laughs> you pick one or I'll pick for you. And even with a 17 year old, sometimes it happens too, where they get overwhelmed and they can't decide. And Sometimes that's that's kind of the um, benefit of having a parent present, right? Is that you can help them make that decision so they don't have to use anxiety to do, it. you know? It's like, okay, I'm stressed. I don't know, I don't know. Should I go to the blue dress or the red dress? All right, we're the blue one. And either they're gonna pick the opposite, right? <laughs> or they're gonna do what you say. But, but giving them, reasonable choices and, and being firm and having those consequences too. Cause that's another thing is a lot of empty, empty threats that happen where I'm gonna get <laughs> you like, okay, what does that mean? <laughs> you know where I live? Of course you're gonna get me, I have nowhere to go. But you know, uh, yeah, the phone might get taken away or this or that, but I like how you're saying it. Okay, this is expectation Monday, Wednesday, Friday. So it's not about taking away negative consequences, it's positive consequences. All right, you did it three days, so next week, you get your phone for the whole phone time. You miss a day. All right, you miss a day of phone time. And it's it's based on your performance and your effort versus trying to catch you slipping.
0: Exactly. So, and so uh, you mentioned earlier that uh, African-Americans have, a, you have a harder time with African-Americans getting together uh, as a family. Why is that?
1: Well, it's it's getting together in the context of we're going to have a meeting because it does seem very you know, for lack of a better word, very white. Like, oh, formalized, because our families are very informal. Anybody can be your cousin, right? Like, you feel like my cousin right now. (laughs) Like, it's, and so I guess blending our informality, which is just a part of our value system. Families are so permeable with the Black culture, you know, Black Americans specifically, because of Hello Slavery, we had to create families immediately to survive. And so, Having that structure is not a form of control, too, because it feels like, OK, well, dang, like this therapist, what she thinks think she is telling me how to run my house? I was like, I'm like, i not telling you. I'm giving you a suggestion. You don't have to do it. And so a lot of times when you're not used to having control or having to say, you won't do. it. Saying no is like a powerful thing. And so I think that's where I get. That's where it happens. It, it becomes like a that's a power struggle. That's the easy way to say it. But if I can get them to understand conceptually, like you, like you, get, you already do it. So like, like, yeah, this is great. Like it's thirty minutes, maybe an hour. Yeah. If you're already eating, you're already talking about it. But it just having a direction versus being this aimless thing or this very quiet time together where you're not really interacting. Because you know most people don't eat at tables anymore. They eat in their room. They eat in front of the couch. And so, just getting them to realize what they're missing too by not having these conversations. That's been successful. But yeah, and then also having the kind of old school traditional or child rare where they just need to fear me and that's it. And it's like, how well did that work for you? (laughs) Do you have a friendship with your parents now? Is it a real friendship though? Because once you're an adult, you can have a friendship with your parents. You're not friends, right? You have a friendship. Like we have common things we can talk about and that takes years to figure out. Like if you just meet your parent as a person at 25, it's gonna be really hard to form a friendship because I feared you all my life. So who are you? Who is this human that can't hurt me anymore? That, that's a lot of work. That's a whole other <laughs> type of therapy right there. That's trauma therapy right there. Um, but yeah, I think those are the barriers really. It's, it's a power struggle. Um, it's kind of adhering to some traditional things. Some of it is racialized trauma too, you know, hierarchies. I don't want to do anything white because that's going to take away from my identity as a Black person. And it's, yeah, white people may have made it up or put it in books, but who said that? Who says they made it up? I mean, there's tons of cultures that have, you know, meetings. Meetings are not something that's yeah. the one race. You can, the beauty of a family meeting is you make it like your family. Y'all can have, I mean, I've, I've suggested cold words and, you know, having little flags and, you know, you got a dance, everybody got a dance break. Like whatever feels like your family is what's going to make it make sense to you. But if you're trying to live up to some expectation you think I have, of course it's not going to work.
0: So what I don't like is that structure should not be synonymous with, you know, Caucasians. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'm not gonna say chaos, but unorganized behavior should not be synonymous with people of color. It is not yeah. uh, acting white when you have structure and organization. And mm-hmm. uh, I think, uh, I joke with my, my father, um, Him and I, you know, we use particular vocabulary around uh, other people. And uh, I said, uh, one of them tried to joke him because he used the word satiated uh, after he finished eating. And uh, I said, you know, it's only black people that will joke you about having a vocabulary or look at this dude eating a salad, you know, like, look, he try to be healthy and stuff like that. And it's like, why do we uh, (laughs) why do we do that to each other? Uh,
1: Oh, humor is a powerful grounding thing it really does put us in reality but you got to process the humor for it to not be so painful like we, we love to tell jokes right being funny oh is, yeah it, it, but it the power of a joke is that we both get it so like you can make fun of your dad because he knows you know he's intelligent and he knows that you're intelligent and so it's like all right satiated man me love.
0: like <laughs>
1: funny it's funny but if it's like being smart i've been called a nerd all of my life, or anytime I tried to introduce intellectualism into our family, you reject me, well, then that's going to give dads to be like, all right, man, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm full. Like, he'll change his behavior just to not feel that feeling. And so, yeah, <laughs> we do that because it is effective. It works to kind of bring the tension down. But the thing about a good joke is the audience has to laugh. <laughs> and so if the people aren't laughing, you're not funny. And that's because that's what bullies love to say, right? Oh, she's joking. You were bad at it. Like you saw. That wasn't funny. I'm not laughing. Everybody that's afraid to say something aren't laughing. So clearly, get off the stage, right?
0: <laughs> yeah, we're, yeah. Exactly. And I, I guess that you know that kind of covers the black mental health. Uh, I don't know if you ever heard of the uh, post-dramatic uh, slave syndrome.
1: Yeah. Oh yeah. Oh yeah.
0: <laughs> and so it's, I. Go ahead. Go ahead.
1: Oh, I'm just. It's just so. I, I love seeing the research in uh, just black identity it really didn't come along, along to the 80s but it's like dang it why is this taking so long like nobody cared about how our brains worked or how we became who we are because again being seen as human just on a basic level like that was the first goal right and so 120 years later oh let's study this as you know let's actually put black people in studies like they weren't studying us not in you know psychology, like none of that stuff is normed on Black people, so. But the residual, we call it uh, collective trauma of slavery. That, that's, that's something that I talk about with all of my clients, whether they are Black or not, because that's representing. I'm going to be a Black person every time I'm in front of a client, so you need to be aware. Because it's important for me that my humanity is always validated. I don't know, I don't know if that's a bad thing, It hasn't hurt me yet so i'm not gonna stop doing it because that's me being authentic in my work um yeah what were you gonna say well
0: i I was i was saying i think the biggest thing when it comes to uh these you know cultural jokes that we had right um they're they're only they're like spicks of things that have been passed down throughout the years right Mm -hmm. whether you want to say the insecurities uh whether you want to say that they're superstitions right beliefs and I really, I'm really big on empowering our kids. And so you also talked about fear, right? Mm-hmm. So you got you got the parent that's got to deal with all the mess that they were dealing with out in the street, right? All the stuff they had to deal with. They come home, they want order. It's, you know, yay or nay, it's fear. And then I'm also, uh, whether I'm openly complaining about it or I'm teaching them subconsciously, I'm teaching them to... Don't be like X, Y, and Z because that's how the white people are, right? right. Or this is how you got to work twice. How many, how many household black households have you heard where you said where it's been told you have to work twice as hard, right? That is known in every black household. You got to work a, twice as a, hard.
1: That is a cultural norm. We all, we I all think,
0: literally from you're in Texas. I yep. grew up in New York slash Virginia, so on the East Coast. So you are in a, you're in you're in the, you know, you're 1,500 miles away from me, and you've heard that in your household. Mm-hmm. And so yep. what happened, or what has happened over these, let's say 120 years that we've been free, I don't know if I'm accurate on that, 140. Yeah. yeah
1: give, give, 140. Or take a, 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 give or take a Jim Crow, right?
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, give or take those times. Uh, what has happened over those last 140 years as to why that is instilled in the Black community across all, pretty much all 50 states? I don't know if there's Black people live in Idaho. And so, uh, <laughs>
1: Think about it, like it started from the inception of this country, the three-fifths compromise. We were literally not a whole human, but we were counted to benefit someone else. Like you're, you're a name on a ledger, like you're a price. So to have your value quantified in numerical terms for the, mo- the majority of your existence in a place, that's hard to undo even though we don't think about it a lot of the time. So yeah, being twice as good. So think about it. Even if we just did the math, three times two is six. That's <laughs> more than five. So in order for me to be better than you, I have to be twice as good as you are. Like your mediocrity is seen as, you know, fine, but I, my mediocrity is seen as way, way less. And, you know, that that's just a That's a theory that I'm like, okay, it doesn't really have any legs, but if you just wanna give it a simplistic kind of terms.
0: No, I I think that's actually a great theory. That's the best one I've heard so far.
1: (laughs) it's like, right, you have to be twice as good, but I guess it's protective. That's again, that informal family, like I was talking about earlier, if nothing else, African culture, we think about like big society culture, human life is value. Like that's that's the number one value. If we compare it to other cultures, like uh, Asiatic cultures, the collective or the or the the unit, the group cohesion, that's like their number one value. You can see it all over the different cult all the, over the different Asian Asian cultures, right? How they do it in China with you know communism, with halfway communism, or how they do it in South Korea, or how they do it in Japan. It's still we just dig through all the layers. It's all about the collective. So when we think about African culture, like family is super important. They have huge families or, you know, your village is your family. It becomes extended very quickly. And even, you know, I think about how colonization really distorted that value Uh, because when we look at like European cultures um, or I guess Western European cultures, the value is, is property and objects and things. Like it sounds like I'm diminishing it, but it is what it is because you've literally made people into things because that has more value to use than that human life. And then we think about our native and indigenous brothers and sisters, they value environment, like the the land, the the trees, that is the most important thing to them. There's $15 million sitting in a bank account for the Sioux nation that they won't take from America because of Mount Rushmore. Like they don't want your money, they want their land. And so understanding that values on that level can also make it very easy of like, yeah, I, I, people are more important than anything. That's why Black Lives Matter is a thing. That's why we take to the streets. That's why death is so igniting to people of color. You think about if Black people were killed by serial killers at the rate that white people are. Well, <laughs> will we might have figured out how to get rid of serial killers. <laughs> hey, we just watch it on TV and it's like, oh, Ted Bundy, he's interesting. It's like, no, he's not. He has a, he's a social like, bad. That's not cool. I don't want to watch him, <laughs> but, but then you have, you know, the accumulation of wealth and, and the hoarding of wealth. And like, it's 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 not in conflict with caring about people because, but you're more likely to share your resources if you care about people first. Yeah. It's not a bad value, it's just the way it comes out. Like people that value things might be the best artists and create, you know, beautiful buildings and create objects that last and technology. Like, it just sucks that the way our cultures have collided is that, this value has become the most important value in the world, not just in America. That things and, and accumulation and stuff outside of us is more important than what we have to give to each other and give to the earth. And so it back to your original question, that's how cultural values kind of permeate across time and space. Um, because at the core, we all kind of have a similar collective belief that you are just as important as me, and I'm just as important as you. And the fact that you exist is a blessing and is something to celebrate. That's so, why we're so happy. So, to.
0: <laughs> I have to be honest. I don't in our lifetime. I don't see the values changing as far as what's more important than the other. I see property. Um, I see assets, money being the thing that will dominate. Uh, now, I do think that both should be intertwined. I think if both yeah. are intertwined and you see it, you know, you think, I think as the years are going by, you know, more vegans exist, more, more uh, let's go green, you know, recycling. So it is merging very slow.
1: Right. A little bit, a little bit, like everything's yeah, little down
0: here. Bit. Yeah. A little bit, you know, they just now started, you know, trying to clean up uh, the ocean in a different way, as far as the plastic, um, the different ways they're trying to attack that. So there are things that are kind trying to intertwine but yeah it is so far behind um i just don't want and and that's one of the reasons why also i started this podcast uh generally this podcast is for everybody which is why i I really pride myself in trying to make sure people from different walks of life are on this podcast but the one thing uh that i really care about uh is the fact that i want and this is why you know obviously needs to be on youtube i don't know if i sound like a black man on audio only but I want the uh, <laughs> I want the the, way, uh, <laughs> the audience that are look like me to be able to relate to me, and that it is possible. Uh, one thing that I, I have I've had plenty of discussions with, whether it be friends or family, is every the, the idea is that we all start with we all start with less or less chances of success than somebody of color. I mean, a Caucasian individual, which I believe, well, I will say seventy percent seventy percent of, 70% of the time is true. Yeah, we'll go with seventy percent,
1: and that's a very generous. <laughs> it's very generous.
0: Yeah, because you can't uh, turn your
1: skin off. Like, I guess if you were a white passing black person, I'd give you seventy percent.
0: So, so there we go. All right. Yeah, that's our compromise. So, uh, <laughs> so okay, you start. You you start off, and uh, you don't have what they have. I think we've seen enough examples to where mm-hmm. it is possible. Now will it be harder? Yes, I don't believe in handouts either. To be personally, I don't. Okay. Um, and so, unless you know, we could talk about subsidized programs and stuff like that. But in general, if you don't
1: see it as a handout. Then it doesn't. It doesn't count.
0: <laughs> <laughs> but um, if I want to earn what I earned, I want to earn what I earned. And I guess that's my validation that hey, look, uh, me right. You see me? I'm a black man, or you know, my fiance black woman i'm able to stand next to these other my counterparts my these other individuals that i work with my peers and Mm -hmm. i'm able to stand tall next to them black white purple doesn't matter and that i don't want people to already count themselves out because they are black i don't want them to count themselves out because they came from the hood Mm -hmm. and uh automatically well that job or that opportunity you know who you know who gets those opportunities you know you know how that go i don't i don't like i don't entertain those conversations uh i don't like to keep myself or my son and those type of uh thought thought process or my daughter as well because we already handicap ourselves and we already have enough handicaps as it is you know uh extensively
1: therapy we call that fortune telling and it's an irrational thing we do we, we make predictions not based on possibility or like, okay, these things could happen. We try it's one thing and it's gonna be negative. You're like, nope, I'm not entertaining that. So that's good. That's actually very healthy to do because it doesn't get you any positive outcomes. If you're right, you're not gonna feel nothing because you already defeated yourself. And if you're wrong, you feel worse. Yeah. You didn't want to be wrong. Right.
0: <laughs> so it's and it's that subconscious uh mindset conditioning that you know we we had no control it was- over because because our parents probably maybe have instilled in or our environment, right? So we mm-hmm. grow up feeling like that. Uh, my, my, this is what I stand by. Hey, look, we got s- social media. There's so much content that we are exposed to more than people growing up 20, 30 years ago that you see it now. Like in the 80s, even the 90s, I say even the early 2000s to a certain extent, because not everybody had internet, right? You know?
1: cable. Hey.
0: Yeah. It, so you, um... Somebody can say something to you in your neighborhood and you believe it to be true. Because you have unless you go to a library, you have no other uh, way of referencing that to to say that's real or not. So mm-hmm. that's the world that you start believing. And then you and then you grow up and then now you're telling your kids the same thing. Uh, but now obviously there's there's so many things that in your smartphone that you can detest whatever that whatever that is. But then again, you got media that's kind of controlled as well. So, but that's a whole nother rabbit hole.
1: He's saying it's like we have access to more power at least the power of, of knowledge than ever before and it's really up to us to engage with that and just being able to see through the crap like you gotta be able yes. to see through stuff. And I I, have to, I had this uh, conversation with my partner a lot. He he's like man these kids it's like they they invest so much in these influencers and like the person but they're not listening to the ideas. They're they're like well I value this person because they're cool, they look good, this that this that they're entertaining but Do you hear what they're saying? Do you see what they're doing? Like, you still gotta, you can like this person and still critique this person and still have a critical thought about this person versus just, I'm all or nothing. Like I love them or I hate them. It doesn't have to be so polarizing, but also going to find the information, go to the source, keep looking for it till you find the root of it. Where do they get that idea from? Why are you just believing the first thing you hear? It's not the same thing as being on the street and having to go you know, to a library, but you can't even get the library because it's segregated or something. Who knows? Like, this is not fifty years ago, so there's no excuse to not. There's very few excuses. I'll never say never, but there's no. very few excuses to not engage in the information, especially if you're curious about. It.
0: Yes, um, my father. This is a his analogy is that uh, when it comes, he's a real religious man. So his analogy is that you know, if you've been exposed to God, right? then you can never mm-hmm. say that you never saw it and you just made a decision whether you wanted to go with christ or not and so that's kind of how i look at it with the information right we see uh remember uh Pint my ride not even "Pimp my ride uh when they on mtv when they showed they show their cribs they show their houses right mm-hmm. so even as far back as that when you used to see you know these young people that look like us with these mm-hmm. nice houses now one thing is that obviously is a chance or probably even less that you end up being that rapper or that uh, NFL, NBA player. But you know it exists for somebody of color to be in in that environment uh, and to be around those type of network, around those type of people. So you think, okay, well, how can I get like that? Well, I'm not a rapper. All right, cool. Maybe I'm an artist. Maybe I am an author. You know, and start looking into, but that also takes me a community or a parent is instilling in that in that kid to uh, help that that talent blossom. So there's so many layers to it uh but that that's really uh to sum it all that's one of the reasons why I started this podcast.
1: Yeah, exposure, exposure, exposure is so important. Exposure and awareness. I think that's what I can bring to kind of what you already do because that again that title is what attracted me to reach out to you. Okay, yes. Wealth of the mind. Like your your mental health is your mental wealth. I know you've heard that one before. But being exposed to things and then being aware and then exploring that. Okay. I think about when you say Cribs, the first thing I thought was masterpiece gold ceiling. He's already sold that house. But I'm like, okay, look at his house. Do I actually want to go ceiling? <laughs> Cause I can't say I want what he want what he has. Cause that's what a lot of the kids do is they have these, like I said, unrealistic reputation. I'm not a rapper. He's a businessman. So I can be a business person. So I'll pick that part. And then I like that couch, but I do not like, I kind of want to elevate it. So you got to, Pick and choose what works for you, so you still have to be able to reflect it within yourself. But just being exposed to it is the first step. Like if I've never seen it, I have I'm starting again way behind the starting line versus somebody who's had it in front of their face and take it for granted every day.
0: Awesome, and I really I really appreciate this uh, conversation too. Uh, this, like I said, this this was going to be a different uh, different discussion, but it needed to be talked about. Uh, outside of the uh, just the racial traumas and, and uh, categories, but as far as dealing with families, divorce, uh, relationships, high achievers, or overachievers. Because um, in my podcast, I have a lot of people that I interview that are, I'm not going to call them overachievers, but they excel exceptionally against the average individual. Because I don't yeah. know them enough to say that they're an overachiever. Uh, but.
1: overachiever usually it's usually self-described <laughs> so yeah you're right it's like I'm not gonna
0: call you that uh, yeah 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 <laughs>
1: like, got uh,
0: a <laughs> and so if I'm if, if I'm uh if I'm facilitating you know this podcast this information and telling people hey shoot for the stars do the best be the best version of yourself okay so when you get there or when you're in the midst of it how do you process it how are you dealing with that and then also how's your family process that um mm-hmm. You know what? What do we have? A fifty percent divorce rate in America?
1: It's gone down. I just I just read some research. It's forty percent now. So it's gone oh, down. Okay. Yeah. And that's, that's because we're taking our time getting married now, right? And people are good. waiting a little bit longer. So that was the I was process. I was like, oh, okay. Hope, hope. <laughs> so it's, it's 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 more than half of people end up staying together for the duration of their lives, and that's focus on that sixty percent versus that forty, right?
0: No, yeah,
1: yeah. (laughs) Like when I tell people to shoot for the stars, it's like, all right, shoot for the stars. So you're on a path, look out the window, (laughs) like take it all in, call your mom or if your mom is with you, you know, communicate with with ground control, the people that ground you, right? You know, move around the cabin, like explore this journey that you're on while you're on it. Because once you get to the moon or get to wherever you're going, that's a whole nother journey. Instead of seeing it as an end point it's the beginning of a new it's the, it's the beginning of the end and the, the end of a new beginning like all right i'm there and now i'm starting this um but yeah i like that though keep telling people to shoot for the stars but then like what are you doing in the ship are you just like holding your you know holding the steering wheel so tight you don't see anything else no you gotta watching astronauts yeah that's like a that's like a calming thing because they just be floating in, chilling like y'all work in space dude like i'd be mean, you know, Freaking out. hyper, but I'm a hyper person, so, <laughs> <laughs> but, but just enjoying the ride and you can still, you use so much of your brain. People think, well, yeah, at least 10 of your brain. That's not true, but you use so much of your brain, just getting the things done, but that's why you have a work week. Some, at some point, what else is there, you know?
0: Exactly. And so, Rest. uh, what is your, what is your big why as to, you know, you know, the reasons why you do what you do in your study, you know, in your field of work, uh, as I like to say, what is your rich state of mind?
1: Oh, that's beautiful. My rich state of mind is because I know I've been <clears throat> bestowed with gifts to feel with people, to have compassion, to encourage people. I've been, I've been gifted with seeing that silver lining, that gold lining, whatever color it is. And I can't contain it. I can't just keep it to myself. I'm, I'm not a narcissistic person. So, cause if I just kept it to myself I would just be feeding myself all day. Who's that going to help? It's not going to help anyone. Um, you know, I, I, I'm a person of faith, and so the the verse that kind of gets me through, and how I got to the, the power, peace, joy thing. You know, God's not giving us a spirit of fear, but of power and of peace and of a sound mind. So, you know, power, love, and a sound mind. Well, love that's joy to me, and and a sound mind is peace, and you know, power. Like if I can exhibit that in my life every day, and and, and give that to other people through the work that we do, through their realizations, because I'm not doing it, and it's the epiphany is realizing what you already knew was true. And so if I can get people to that epiphany and get them to stay on their path or change their path or do whatever they need to do, and again, I'm not doing this. They're choosing to do it. I'm just creating creating the environment for where that's possible that I'm doing what I am what I was put on earth to do. Um, but it's definitely from a place of, I can't keep what I have inside of me inside of me. I wasn't, i go crazy. <laughs> <laughs>
0: And it seems like you um, one thing I want to make sure I I hone in on, too, is uh, knowing yourself. Uh, And it seems like you have a very good grasp on who you are, what your capabilities are. And you didn't say weaknesses, but things you need to work on. And (laughs) and then everybody else, uh, you know, focusing on that as well. So uh, I really appreciate you, uh, Tiffany. Really, uh, I can tell you really get excited about this. I'm actually really passionate about it because I think. I think the mental side of, of how we do things is really important. And mm-hmm. if you take a step back, maybe sometimes you'll realize why you do what you do, whether it's family family or kid, you know, childhood trauma, maybe it's racial, maybe it's demographic, you know, every, you know, what I was exposed to, everything is, in, I think, brings, goes right back to where you and your decision-making and why you do what you do. Why is your, you know, self-esteem low? Why is it high?
1: purpose if you don't connect to the idea of purpose you're going you're going to be aimless and so yeah like I love that you kind of see how complex it is and that's not going to deter you it's just like okay cool more stuff (laughs) bring it on because all of it's going to make a journey more powerful and and when you get to the you know one pinnacle because we won't say the pinnacle but a pinnacle (laughs) you can really look back and see it's, it's the journey that that I'm always about like I write off my on my emails. Peace on the journey, like, because I know all the other stuff you're gonna have. You're gonna have the stress. You're gonna have the, you know, hard times. But I'm gonna wish you peace because, it's hard. It's hard enough.
0: No, I, I, enough. I understand. Uh, where can people find you?
1: Well, I have a website. It's called Um, I have Instagram on thatephinylane.llc. So that's my uh, brand consulting, um, presentation stuff, counseling, pretty much the whole business. And then I also have the store shop on Epiphany Lane. Um, That's on Instagram as well, Facebook, Twitter. So you put Epiphany Lane, you'll probably find, hopefully something like me. You you might find a street (laughs) that might happen. But if you put Epiphany Lane Dallas in Google, you'll be able to find quite a few things about me. I've been pretty lucky to have good SEO. and yeah, hopefully on more podcasts, maybe on another Rich Mind podcast, but I, I really just love having conversations because I think, uh, what, what's the old saying, conversations rule the nation, right?
0: <laughs> oh, yeah, I like that. And yeah, there are definitely, so yeah, I, I definitely do want to do another one with you because there's also some other topics uh, that I would like to discuss and uh, have a back and forth conversation with about uh, because, and maybe I might make this, maybe make, make it like a special or something because- uh, there are, I think there are certain topics that people maybe kind of shy away from. Yeah. And they need to be discussed because they're, they're our reality. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, without obviously trying to bastardize any any demographic or, or any entity, anything like that, um, you still want to uh, address the things that affect us on a day-to-day basis, positively or negatively. Um, and I want people to um, just listen to it. Just listen to it internalize it right because you hear somebody else talking about not you out loud you just internalizing it and then try to figure out how you can address address that
1: (laughs) yeah yeah no I think that's awesome and again I just want to commend you for you know again your service you know being open about your life for us to discuss kind of my work but also just wanting people to be better because you'd be surprised how it's not that people don't want it it's that they don't have the space for it you have to have space within you to be able to give and if you're so burdened it's hard and so I, I just want to commend you as a, as a father as a partner that you're, you're doing it you're doing it right you're doing it right thank you keep going and
0: I, and I appreciate your time thank you for this episode
1: oh I can't wait to hear it I'm, I'm excited so all right